Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. So this is James Altucher at the James Altucher Show. I have with me one of my favorite, one of my new favorite authors, Andy Weir. Is that how you pronounce it? Weir? Yeah, Yeah, that's right. W-E-I-R. You just wrote The Martian, and it's got like, or I shouldn't say you just wrote it. You wrote it a while ago, but it's got six over 6,000 reviews on Amazon. It's the number one uh, science fiction book on Goodreads. Ridley Scott is making him. When's the movie coming out? Uh, the movie comes out November 25th. Matt Damon is playing the main character. Like, this, is, this must have been the coolest thing in the world. This was your first published novel, right? Uh, that's right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's awesome. It's all my dreams coming true. And, you know, I don't want to, um, you know, I'm going to get into some of the details inside the book, but without giving any spoilers. But what I really find fascinating is kind of always the story outside of the story. Like you originally self-published this in 2012, correct? Uh, yeah. Well, actually, it goes back a little further than that. I originally posted it as a serial, one chapter at a time, to my website. And um, and who was that, even looking sorry. at your website? Like, who knew oh. to look there? <laughs> well, I've been I've been writing stuff, uh, short stories and web comics and things like that for about ten years. So by 2009, when I started posting the Martian, I think I'd accumulated a few thousand readers. So I, I had regular readers. People signed up for a mailing list and stuff like that. So these were people uh, who were willing to just read stuff on a website from a guy who. Uh, you basically could, could have considered yourself unpublished at that point. Oh, I, I definitely was unpublished at that point. Yeah. Um, and the reason I had a few thousand readers was because earlier I'd written a short story called The Egg that was uh, pretty popular online. So that it, and that's just like a page and a half short story, but people liked it and they reposted it around. So that got me like readers. And where did they? Uh, I, I read The Egg, by the way. It's great. Oh, and where okay. where did they repost it around? Oh, it's just on blogs and uh, websites everywhere. Um, I, I mean, I don't mind if people repost it as long as they give me credit. And so it, it's one of those things. It's only a thousand words long, roughly. So there's, it's like people can make that a, a blog entry. They can just copy paste the entire thing. And so I don't know. I guess it was like a, a convenient for an internet audience. And and so so you you started writing fiction. Um, your your dad was a, a physicist. Were you a scientist? 
Uh, well, no, a computer programmer. That, that was my career up until earlier this year, and when I now the, like, I'm able to support myself with writing, so I do that full time now. That's like a dream come true, right? Oh, absolutely. It's what I wanted since I was uh, hell, like since I was a kid. Like I certainly, certainly when I was a teenager, I was like, I want to be a writer. But um, yeah. And and you went to I see you went to UC San Diego but you didn't graduate. Why didn't you graduate? By the way, I'm right. very much in favor of you not graduating. <laughs> well, uh, I ran out of money. That's simple, pretty simple reason. Were I you depressed? Uh, what's that? Were you depressed that you ran out of money for it? Uh, well, um, so at that time I was depressed like about a lot of things. <laughs> like what? So yeah, I was um, I I was depressed about that. I was. I was broke. I didn't really have any um, skills. I, I was a I was a decent entry level programmer, but not like not a not a senior level, not some whiz kid or anything like that. And it was it was rough on me. And uh, also around that time, I'd broken up with my girlfriend, and it was just uh, my life was a mess. But the 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 actual reason I I left college was I I just didn't have enough money to uh, afford it anymore. And I was like, well, I can either scrape up enough money to continue paying to to work all day or I can work all day and get paid. <laughs> now now let me let me ask you a question though. Was were your did your parents just say we're not paying for your college and and you were going to a a, a public university was the, the was the tuition not, were you not from California? No, I was from California. The tuition wasn't really a problem. It was just the living expenses. Yeah. And when you spend all day at classes, it means you're not spending all day at work. And I, could, I couldn't afford to do that <laughs> anymore. Uh, and, yeah, my parents um, didn't uh, didn't pay for my college. I was on my own for that. And and what are they – when you – and I'm, I'm dealing with this. I have a 15-year-old daughter who's thinking about college. What did they do? Did they sit your, – your dad obviously placed an emphasis on ex, uh, education. He's a particle physicist. Uh, did he just sit you down and say, listen, Andy, screw you. We're not going to pay for your college? No, he's – I mean, so he, he – it, it was really, it was really important to him that I be independent. Um, like my my whole life had been like, you know, financial like uh, what do you call it? Financial responsibility was kind of drilled into me. It's like I had an allowance, and um, anytime I didn't do chores, they would dock my allowance, and like they they would not. I, I don't know how to put it. They 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 put a lot of work into making me kind of know how to manage money, and that's good actually because I feel like. I really do. I I don't have problems like keeping my money in in order and balancing my my you know my life you know, my accounts so did, to speak. Did you ever and, re- did you ever but, resent them though any of this or like the college stuff? Um. Well, no, not resent because I was bear in mind I was raised with the idea that you should take care of yourself. So once I got out of the house, I felt like I should take care of myself. And my dad floated me loans and stuff like that during my during those lean years. But not enough to to live off of. Just like when I was absolutely like desperately out of money, and I was like, "Well, I'm not going to be able to pay rent unless you give me a loan." And he would grudgingly give me a loan, and then we'd work out a, a payback schedule and, and stuff like that. Um, That's great. Like, what what would happen if I you never didn't pay it back? It. I think it. I, I think it was good because I, I I have a lot of friends who. Um, who were who their parents paid for everything and they never learned fiscal responsibility until until like after college and they were out on their own or a lot of them ended up moving back in with their parents and other ones just like struck out on their own and you know just kind of like were not able to manage finances like racked up huge debts and stuff like that whereas I 
I, I learned the hard way earlier on how to how, how important it is to keep your keep your financial life in order. <laughs> I, I actually, and I'm sure there, there, there's a connect the dots happening here because I see the connection between this and the actual topic of your book, The Martian. But l- let me ask you, like, if and I know this doesn't seem like it has a lot to do with the book, but let's say you chose not to pay back the the loan from your dad would he get upset or would you or it just wasn't even under consideration uh yeah that not paying it back never even occurred to me okay um That's but good. if if i hadn't i imagine he would have uh i mean he would have kept bringing it up i mean <laughs> right uh, and the loan the loan what it was for me at the time a huge amount of money but for me now is like trivially even just like before before the book money even just like being an engineer just being a software engineer, it's like my salary was pretty good. And so I surely would have eventually been able to pay it off. So, so let's talk about that. So you worked at, you worked at AOL and you worked at Blizzard, which is the game company where you worked on Warcraft. That's right. Warcraft 2 actually is the one I worked on. And That's how long ago it was. <laughs> did, you, did you love like computer programming? Was this like the love of your life at first? Um, well, no. Uh... Uh, so I, I do enjoy computer programming. It's not like I was like toiling to work and miserable. I, I actually do like computer programming. What I, what I, what I really wanted to do was be a writer, but I, I enjoyed computer programming. I didn't really like working for Blizzard though. That was, uh, that was a lot of work. That was, uh, back in the nineties before the computer industry had settled down a bit. Nowadays, software engineers are kind of more expected to work just an ordinary work week. But back then it was like, no, no, if, you know, You'll work like 80 hours a week or 90 or 100 hours a week until we get this product out the door. And if you're awake, you should be at work. And I, I burned out for sure. So so let me ask you this about Warcraft 2 because I don't know that much about game programming, but I kind of can guess. Um, and, I, and again, if, 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 if you're a listener and you want to just hear about the Martian, skip ahead like five minutes because I just have a question about <laughs> Warcraft 2. Like with all of those sort of shoot-em-up games – don't they just take like the basic engine like Doom and and um, copy the whole basic framework and then map out a new dungeon and new monsters and new guns and put them well, in different places and that's your game? Nowadays those engines exist and uh, you can buy them or, or contract them out or whatever and you do end up basically you just have to make the, the – the characters and any special physics and it's like that. But back then that didn't exist at all. Everything was, everything was made from scratch. This is, we're talking 1995 and Blizzard was at the forefront of inventing this stuff. So, I mean, the only code base they had to work from was the code base of Warcraft one. And between one and two, they pretty much scrapped the original Warcraft one code base. So it was like, you know, start up by, you know, writing, (laughs) <laughs> your your entry point <laughs> and then work from there it wow. uh, it was yeah nowadays things are very different but you know this was 20 years ago so so okay so so speeding ahead to 2012 actually what the hell did you do between 1995 and 2012 uh, computer programmer um and same as i did from yeah so I've, I've been programming computers one way or another since i was 15 so that's since the kind of mid to late 80s um, I worked for Sandia National Labs when I was in high school and wow. just sort of a kind of like a, I, I wrote, 
I was hired as just sort of a gopher, but the lab I ended up working for said, well, what we need is somebody to figure out how to program computers so that we can look at this data, right? And so they said, here's a book on how to program and see, there's a computer, let us know when you work it out. And so that was pretty cool. That's how I kind of got into programming. Um, then, you know, were, you, were, you, were you writing all along, like kind of in your free time? Not as much, because, I mean, well, I was once I got into college. I started writing a lot of stuff then, but not, not in high school as much, no. Uh, in, in college, yeah, right, right, starting from college, I started up, I wrote a bunch of short stories, and I wrote a book, and it was terrible. And fortunately, that book, um, I finished it before the age of the Internet really kind of came into being, before the, the web existed, before people posted things online and stuff like that. So fortunately, there are no digital copies. No one will ever find that book, which is really badly written. <laughs> well, you know, we uh, all we all have kind of our first book in the drawer that we have to get through. Yeah. That's how you get the 10,000 hours of, like, you know, practice with intent. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, the first pancake, for sure. Um, and then the uh, – then uh, – uh, after after leaving AOL, or actually getting laid off from AOL, this was in the late 90s, I want to say. Yeah, late 90s. I got laid off from AOL, and I got a big severance package, and I had stock options and stuff, so I had a bunch of money. So I took three years and tried to break into writing. I wrote a, I wrote a second book, which was much better than the first, but um, uh, it also, I mean, it was kind of like meh. It was like medium quality. I think the plot was decent, but it, uh, the skill in writing was really low. Uh, anyway, so I, I, I spent three years writing it, and it, or I spent three years, uh, I finished writing it actually pretty quickly, and then I spent a long time trying to get it published, like trying to get an agent, trying to get a publisher interested. Typical writer story, couldn't get any interest, and I eventually gave up and went back into the computer industry, figuring, well, I tried. And then I just, once the web started to take off, then I'm like, oh, here's an avenue where I can write fiction just as a hobby. And that's what The Martian was when I was writing it. It was just a, a hobby. I would post a chapter at a time to my website, and people were reading it, and they liked it. And then when I finished, I figured we were done. But turned out it, uh, it got really popular. And so so um, a couple of things. One is, as when you since you were already kind of self-publishing it on your website, did that make publishers less interested later on, the fact that it was out there? Like, no. No. No, it went the other way, uh, actually. Well, so uh, I've self-published, and then I was done, and so I was just, I figured that was it. But some of my readers came and said, like, well, I like this story, but I hate reading it on a website. Can you make an ebook version? So I did that. And then they're like, well, thanks for making this ebook version. That's a free download, but I don't really know how to download things from the Internet and put them on my e-reader. Can you just post it on the Kindle so that I can just get it that way? So I, did, I figured out how to do that, and that's really easy. But um, Amazon requires you to charge at least 99 cents. They, you, you're not allowed to give stuff for, away for free. They want to make money, right? Right. And so I did that, and I said, okay, you can pay 99 cents to have Amazon put it on your Kindle, or you can download it for free from my site right here. And way more people just paid the buck, you know, because it's convenient and it's easy, and they already had things set up. Um, I, I, do have that, to, I do have to repeat, that is a great way to publish. Like, I always recommend self-publishing. And if you look at yourself, E.L. James self-published Fifty Shades of Grey at first. Hugh Howey self-published Wool at first. Yeah. Teresa Reagan has sold hundreds of thousands of copies with her thrillers. Like a lot of, uh, it's almost like uh, self-publishing. A lot of the publishers now are kind of looking towards that area to pick out the ones they want to then later sell. 
Right, and that's what happened to me. Um, so it sold really well on Amazon, and it got up into the top sellers list, and that got the attention of uh, Random House. So actually, they came to me. Well, what does it mean it sold really well? Like, how many copies did it sell as a self-published book? Um, between, I, I posted it in September, and actually at first it sold, like, nothing. It sold, like, you know... 20 copies in September and then like 100 copies in October but then it started getting higher and higher and by the time Random House was talking to me in March it was at about 35,000 sales. Wow and were you doing any marketing or was this just word of mouth? Just pure word of mouth I didn't market it at all. Man that's like that's like the dream story. It is and well what happens is like it got it, it so, like, the Amazon reviews were high, and so it's not just word of mouth, right? It's like Amazon will suggest things to you. Say, like, oh, you like science fiction? Well, here's a highly here, – here's a sci-fi novel for 99 cents that has a high rating from readers. Right. You know? And then, and then once once it got into the top sellers list, like the top 20 and top 10, and, like, it was, it was number one in sci-fi for a while, um, that – basically cements its position because of course people are like i want to read a sci-fi book what are the top 10 sellers right now you know and so it just gets you a lot more sales it snowballs so so i've had q howie on the podcast like were you around the same time as him in terms of being self-published I'm, I'm a little bit after him wool was already out um and selling well and stuff around the time i started or around the time so like he, he he's definitely like a few years before me and but yeah, we were we were kind of we're, we're kind of contemporaries in the grand scheme of things on this whole uh, self-publishing thing. So 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 Random House called you and they said, "Look, we'll let you keep the Kindle rights and we want the bookstore rights." Or what did they say? No, they said that we want the wor worldwide rights, but we have a big pile of money for you in exchange for them. <laughs> oh, and, so that's good. Um, well, actually, there, there was an intermediate step I skipped. So um, Random House, uh, an editor there named uh, Julian Padilla, who is like my editor, <laughs> or, well, Random House's editor, but, um, and he, he liked it and wanted to make a print version, and he, so he said, like, he talked to a colleague of his in the industry, uh, a literary agent named David Fugate, and said, like, oh, I was thinking about making this, I was thinking about making an offer to this writer. What do you think of the, of the, of the book? Just want your opinion. So David read it and said, I like it. And then he turned around and became my agent and then turned back to Julian and said, okay, let's figure out how much you're going to pay us for it, which is <laughs> kind of a funny story. But that was what Julian intended. He, he was like, okay, well, I'm about to, I'm, I'm about to make an offer uh, to this guy. He should have an agent. So, you know, go be his agent. <laughs> And um, so that's how I got an agent and a publishing deal. Everything came to me. Like the, the, David said, like, hey, you need an agent? And I'm like, yes. After th three years earlier in life, three years spent trying to no avail to get a literary agent, and one comes knocking at my door. I'm like, hell yeah. And he immediately says, well, good news. <laughs> Random House wants your book. <laughs> well, you know, I find in publishing that when when it's hard for the author, it's impossible. But when you can, when when you can, when a deal is already there, then everyone shows up. Like then it's no problem. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think I think I, I think the self-publishing route is really cool. I think it's an opportunity. It, it's really opened up the publishing world because now there's no how to put it. There's no intermediate step where someone at a publishing house has to guess on whether or not it'll sell well. Because what? you can you can go prove yourself. 
directly with just online sales. And then you can say like, hey, publisher, my book sold, my book is selling really well online. People like it. And, and to the publisher, they're like, well, that's a much lower risk. We like this idea, you know. Well, did you consider, when you were already at the 35,000 copy point, did you consider quitting your job just from that? Uh, no. Remember, I was only selling it for a buck. I wasn't, I wasn't focused on making money. My, my goal the whole time was just um, to accumulate readers, really. What I wanted was just, I wanted as many people to read it as possible. That, and, that was my goal. I was making pretty good, I mean, I, 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 I was never in any real financial problems. I was an engineer, you know, we get paid pretty well. <laughs> And and when when before Random House contacted you, were you considering were you already starting a second book or a sequel or anything like that? Because yeah, a, a lot of self-published guys seem to do multiple books very quickly to kind of build that readership. Uh, well, no, that, I mean I was just plugging along. I finished The Martian and I started it on my next book, which is not a sequel. It's a it's a it's another a different story. It's not the Venusian. And- Sorry? It's not like the Venusian from Venus? <laughs> no, no, no. Not the Venusian, no. <laughs> uh, no, it's a completely different story. The next one I'm working on is tentatively titled Zhek, Z-H-E-K, and it's a more traditional sci-fi. It's got, you know, aliens and telepaths and faster than light travel and stuff. It's not the rigidly technical uh, sci-fi that the Martian is. Well, well uh, but... Okay, go uh, ahead. I've, I've already got... I've, I'm... I've got a contract for that book now with Crown, a Random House, the same publisher as The Martian, and I've got a deadline, and you know I'm, I'm being a writer now. <laughs> wow! So, so this is what you do. So, so what's your what's your workday like? Oh uh, well, I'll get up in the morning and usually walk. Uh, there's a coffee shop that's about a five minute walk from my house, so I'll get up in the morning, go to the coffee shop, get a get a cup of coffee and like a kind of egg McMuffin equivalent breakfast. Have that. Take a quick walk around the neighborhood. Just get some exercise. And I settle in. And I, I I set myself working hours of you know from whenever I'm done with that walk until 5 p.m. And that's I'm not allowed to do I self-imposed limits. Like I'm not allowed to watch TV. I'm not allowed to you know go to like various internet websites that I can use as a time sink. I, I have to work. I have to try to write. I try to crank out uh, 500 words a day minimum. If possible, I don't always succeed, but other days I'm really motivated and I get a lot more. So, do you edit during the day, or do you say I'm going to edit when the book's done? No, I, I edit. I go back over it, and it's 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 like two steps, uh, three steps forward, two steps back, right? It's um, so I'll I'll write a chunk, and then the next day I'll usually start by rereading the last you know few pages that I wrote, and then I'll say, oh, that's terrible. Oh, that's ugly. Yeah, you know, and I'll. So I end up kind of doing some editing, and then in in the run up to doing new new content. So so uh, I want to talk about the Martian in a second. But who were some of the writers that influenced you before you started the Martian? Like who who are your favorite uh, writers? Well, I grew up reading the uh, old uh, classic authors of like the fifties and sixties. So I would say that my main influences are uh, Heinlein and Asimov and Clark. Um, yeah, those are like I, the those are like the the big three. Holy Trinity, yeah. Um, so when I was growing up, my dad, back to my dad again, um, he had this big bookshelf full of paperbacks of like sci-fi stories that he'd read when he was a kid and a teenager and a young adult. And so I had just this library available to me of all these paperbacks of pretty much everything ever written by Heinlein or Clark or a lot of Asimov. No one has everything written by Asimov. The guy was the most prolific guy. I think he's written like 600 books. 
It's <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like a bunch of his sci-fi, you know, right? Clearly, like and, the Foundation trilogy and iRobot, like all that oh, stuff. Absolutely, yeah, for sure. And uh, the the robots, um, the robots novels of the uh, Elijah Bailey. Ah. Um, and did did the, you read the, any? Did you read like I used to read uh, some fantasy, like Roger Zelazny. You ever read any of him? Uh, not, uh, not Zelazny, or maybe, maybe if you, if you name the titles of his books, I might, um, but off the top of my head, I don't think I've read Zelazny. Um, I've read, um, some, um, uh, I read all the Incarnations of Immortality series by Piers Anthony, and I liked them at the time that I read them as I got older and reread them again. Uh, so I read them when I was a teenager, and then I, when I got older, I reread them again, and I, I, I felt like, wow, these are actually kind of sexist, and I <laughs> didn't like them as much. But, but you, can, uh, you can argue that about Robert Heinlein's books as well, like Stranger in a Strange right, Land. But, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. However, like, you can argue that he's like a product of his time, right? He, he, if, you, if you read a book from 1951 that uh, has women in the kitchen, you're like, well, okay, that's how things were in 1951. But if you read a book from 1989 that has women in the kitchen, then you're like, well, you know. Right, <laughs> that's that's a little bit different. But in terms of fantasy, my favorite author is Terry Pratchett. I've read all of all of the Discworld novels. Sword of Shannara. What's that? Isn't he Sword of Shannara? No, no, no. He's Discworld. Okay. So like the the Color of Magic, uh, Light, Fantastic, and there's like 25 books in the series. It's and I've read them all. He's a kind of comedy fantasy writer. He's awesome. And uh, what about non-science fiction, non-fantasy writers? Um, I I don't do much of that. <laughs> Outside of that, my main thing is non-fiction. You know, so I like um, I like true crime documentaries and um, yeah, or science-related documentaries, stuff like that. Well, it but, clearly it clearly shows in The Martian that you have done. I have never seen probably so much research done for a book. Than what you did in The Martian. Like, how okay. did you even know all of that stuff? Well, like, that's in lots of research. Like, I'll just give an example. So, so just this is no spoiler. It starts off on the very first page, which, which, which by the way, the book starts excellently. Uh, a guy in the very first chapter is essentially a bunch of astronauts in the year 2035. And you don't know, you don't know that in the book that it's 2035. I only read that later. Uh, but, but in the near future, a guy goes on a manned space mission from the earth to Mars, just as if like right now we were going on a manned space mission from earth to the moon, but it's, this is to Mars and a dust storm happens. Everybody thinks the guy, uh, you know, Mark Watney is dead, so they take off on the ship back to Earth, but it turns out he's alive, and he has to survive for four years. And that's all in the first chapter, and that sets the tone of the book. And and uh, then, for him to survive, it's basically every few pages is another problem that you have to solve scientifically. And the research is incredible on how you solve all these problems about living on, basically, a barren planet. Yep, um, that was uh, tons and tons of research, <laughs> and I tried to I tried to make each problem come naturally, uh, usually from the solutions to the last problem, um, because I didn't want him to just be like unlucky over and over again. I wanted it to be a plausible sequence of problems. Well, it's very plausible, for instance, that he needs food. So I right. don't know, like you're a computer programmer. Where did you get all the botanist knowledge? 
that of how to and and I'm not giving any spoilers. Away. If you think I'm giving any spoilers away, stop me. But it's only uh, in the second yeah. chapter. Uh, he basically grows potatoes out of his own excrement and some soil well, he, or whatever. He uses he uses his excrement as like fertilizer. Right. right? He uses Martian soil, and and then he has some challenges making enough water to make that happen. But that's that's covered in the book. That that's kind of one of the cool things is probably as it's all. Um, but you you had to become yeah. like a, a chemistry so, expert to figure out how to split all the atoms apart to get the water. Like, how did you do well, that? Uh, well, uh, well, it wasn't actually splitting atoms, right? He was just splitting molecules. He he had he 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 had access to oxygen from Mars's atmosphere via. Well, so he has he has a device that will pull the carbons off of CO two and release the oxygen. That's the oxygenator, and so he like has plenty of CO2 in the Martian atmosphere and then the oxygenator inside of his uh, kind of base. And so that from that he can get oxygen, and then he retrieved a bunch of hydrogen from unspent rocket fuel from their landing craft. And then hydrogen plus oxygen is makes water. So, so, um, so even like the oxygenator, though, is that something that is like planned to be on like Mars uh, ships real. or you moon can, ships? You can make one of those. All, all the technology shown in the book really exists. And so, uh, oh, there's there's construction like literally right outside my window here. Um, uh, so, so well, I'm, I'm not hearing it, so maybe the recording isn't getting it either. Oh, that's good. So, okay. so, so, did you were you like in the library a lot, kind of researching every possible thing that could go onto you know a Mars yeah. ship, or what did you do? Yeah, I did lots of research. I mean, although it was all online, right? I yeah. Mean, so just lots of Google. Oh yeah, searches what am I talking about? A library that's like. Ancient, an ancient building, an antique building. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I did, I did lots of research, but mostly, especially for things. So I've got a fairly strong background in physics and um, astro astrophysics. Like, uh, it's always been a deep interest of mine. So I started off with some info there. But um, things like botany, I, I didn't know at all. I had to research from scratch. I was like, okay, what can you grow? What you know, out of all the crops that exist, what can you grow that in a very small area that is enough to feed you? And some research, and I'm like, okay, it looks like potatoes. I'll find an excuse for him to have a live potato that he can work from. And then I'm like, okay, how how do you grow potatoes? And so I just it's just research, research, research. And and the book is very problem oriented. Like you said, some problems were because of luck, uh, and some problems were just because. Look, he's on Mars for four years, and he wasn't expecting it, so he's got to solve all these problems. Now, right. what, what was the creative decision? Like, you don't provide a huge amount of backstory for Mark Watney. Um, you focused more on the problem solving, and it was very—it was a page turner. So, so I don't, um, you know, I don't think this was a bad decision. But what was the creative process involved? Well, I just decided that the focus is all on the problem solving and the survival story. I didn't want to. I, I didn't want to. There, I will freely admit, like the characters in this book, they don't have much depth, and like Mark Watney doesn't really undergo any change, right? Usually, they say like, "Oh, the main character has to change, you know, in order for a story to be valid." And I'm like, "Well, he's the same at the end as he is at the beginning." <laughs> but you <laughs> <Right>? know, he, <laughs> he was. You know what the thing is though about the, him not changing? That became him not changing became important in and of itself. It's like this is the right stuff kind of astronaut. Like he's going to yeah. 
take what he's got in front of him and solve problems. Like I, I this is I'm not going to give a spoiler away, but he's even solving problems or helping the 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 ships other things solve problems creatively at the last you get to see him solving problems through other people's eyes and that was always impressive like when nasa would see him uh solving problems and how they would react like they would say how did he think of that like so you get this sense of mark from that almost yeah um you get a sense of what his personality is and um, the, the thing is, like, you could, it, this could have been a really dark and depressing story, right? It could have been, like, about, I mean, just think about a situation. It would be crippling loneliness, isolation, and constant stress, you know, from, from his life or death situation. I mean, it would break most people. And it, it could have been a really dark story about a guy's descent into insanity, but I just, I wanted to focus on the problem solving, so I just said, all right, this guy, he's not a normal person. He's not he, – he's an astronaut. He was selected for a manned Mars mission. He's, he's like, better than, than normal people, and so he's just, like, made of really strong emotional stuff and can handle it. Did that, did that really upset you when you saw the movie Gravity and, like, Sandra Bullock didn't even seem to care about being an astronaut? <laughs> well, it didn't upset me. I, I did think it was weird that they decided she's a medical doctor who just randomly like became an astronaut. It's like she's a medical doctor who invented a new kind of scan, medical scan that ended up being useful on the Hubble space. Time. That didn't really. I, I don't understand why they didn't just say, "Oh, she's an engineer who invented this thing." Right. I, that struck me as odd. And also, I thought the whole backstory with her daughter dying and stuff. I was like, "Why did that? Why did that exist in this movie?" I, it's like completely irrelevant to the plot. I, I, I don't care about. Like, yeah, I might have cared about her daughter dying and stuff like that if I if they started off with scenes of her and her daughter and then her suffering through the death of the daughter. But it's just like, oh, by the way, I have a daughter who died. Oh, that's sad. Anyway, on with the story. And now, now when now that they're making a movie out of The Martian, do you think the screenwriter or Ridley Scott or anybody will pressure you into providing more emotional? kind of earth oh. story well um uh first off uh so i didn't write the screenplay that was written by drew goddard mm-hmm. who is also known for uh he's uh he wrote uh he, he wrote cloverfield he directed cabin in the woods that's, that's Drew goddard anyway he wrote a screenplay and I've, I've i've seen it and i think it follows the book very well um i, I think everybody's happy with it i i, I know that he and Ridley Scott went back and forth on changes, but I wasn't really part of that process. I was like spectating eagerly. But oh, as, as the writer of the book, what, what, it, my, my only job on the movie is to cash my check, right? I mean, pretty much that's it. I, I have no, I certainly have no authority, and whatever input I have is strictly voluntary on their part. They can, they sometimes ask my opinion on things, and then they may or may not take it, but they they don't have to listen to anything I say. Do you wish you had more input on it? No, actually, um, I'm I I'm not a I'm not a movie maker. I'm not a screenplay writer, and I, I don't have that skill set. So, no, I, I actually kind of really like the exact amount of influence I have on the movie as it is. Like I get to watch from outside. I don't really have to do any of the hard work. Like Drew Goddard wrote the screenplay. I just read it and gave him my feedback and. <laughs> uh, so yeah, no, I'm. I'm. It, it's very exciting. It's just to watch all this stuff happen. See, like hundreds of people, an entire crew, you know, getting together and filming a, a scene that, like, filming my characters, bringing them to life. It's awesome. That that is exciting, and uh, and I, I so so 
at what point in the OOs was there ever a point where you felt like, oh my gosh, this is just not going to work for me. I'm not going to be a writer. Um, way back in the day when I was, uh, you know, way back during that three year sabbatical when I was trying to get my second book published, I just kind of like lost hope. I actually did give up, you know, and so I felt like, well, I I want to be a writer, but I'm I'm not good enough. So I'll just join the I'll join the millions of other people who wish they were writers, but but you know didn't you know weren't weren't good enough. And then like I had completely given up. I that's why like all the stuff like that's, that's why The Martian was a serial. I, I never took it seriously. I never took any of my writing seriously beyond that, and I just bungled into all of this. And so it's it's really surprising. It's awesome. <laughs> and so when it was a serial and and I'm sure you were leaving like cliffhangers because that's what was happening were people like dying to see the next chapter like as soon as you uploaded yeah, it it was awesome I got I got I get fan mail you know people were going like ooh when's that next chapter coming out and you know I post a short story or something and they were like yeah that's nice why aren't you working on the Martian <laughs> you should be so working that, on the next chapter yeah, it was almost great. like the, it was almost like you crowdsourced where you were going to work well, yeah, kind of. And also, um, it was really handy because, I, like, as you pointed out, I, I made a real effort to be technically accurate in The Martian. And um, so my, my readers are a bunch of dorks and nerds like me, right? And so they would point out errors. They'd be like, oh, uh, uh, math error over here. Or, oh, you said that things work this way, but actually I'm a chemist and I can tell you it would go like this. And so it was great for uh, it was almost like crowdsourced um, fact checking. <laughs> oh my god, that that is really great. So so yeah, and then awesome. when was the tipping point when you realized, wow, this is my life's about to change? Um, around the time I guess when when I I, I guess if I had to pick a discrete moment, so it's like we we made the deal with Random House, we agreed on it and everything like that. And now it was time to – it still seemed to me almost like this could be a scam almost, right? It's like I just see people emailing and calling me on the phone and saying they're going to make all my dreams come true. I've never been to Random House's office. This was all just done, you know, teleconferences and stuff like that. And just – so then it was time to actually do it. My agent and Random House had worked out the contract. My agent's like, go for it. Go ahead and sign it and then mail it off to Random House and email it to me and I, I printed it out and – like this is a big long contract, and I sign it, and then I see that the mailing address is, you know, Random House, seventeen fifty four Broadway, New York City. You know, and I'm just like, this is a real thing. Wow. <laughs> you know, I'm mailing this to a big building on Broadway. <laughs> and then, did you just walk into your boss's office and say, "I quit"? No, no, nothing like that. Well, first off, I liked my job that I had at the time. Um, I like my job and my coworkers, so it wasn't like some great relief, you know, you know, moment of you know self empowerment. It was like, oh, I, I kind of like it's too bad I don't have time to do both of these things. And then also, like, I had no idea how the book was going to sell or what. So I actually ended up working over a year beyond that point. So at the point we signed the agreement. It was in like March or April of 2013. The book didn't come out until February of 2014. And um, then once we got a feel for how well it was selling, then it became clear that I could live off of that those royalties. So then I, I quit my job in April and, and I gave notice and everything. Did, did your fellow employees, were they already reading the book? Like did they love the book? Oh, yeah. 
Yep, they all read the book. They all watched with great interest as 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 the whole publishing process went along. Like everybody at the company is rooting for me, and you know, I I told my boss, I warned my boss months in advance. I'm like, well, if, if I can support myself off of the proceeds from the book, I'm I'm going to leave the company. And so he knew not to not to put me in charge of any major projects or initiatives or anything. He knew that I. He, he knew to use me as just sort of a resource without good long-term commitment. So I, I think my exit was pretty smooth. So you've done so much research on how someone can survive on Mars. Has someone <clears throat> like Elon Musk called you and said, hey, can you help us out as we plan a Mars mission? <laughs> well, I, <laughs> it's one thing to do a bunch of research and write a, write a plausible story. It's another thing to actually be a scientist and, and, and do all this stuff. So <laughs> no, 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 no one's called me like that. Although I did get a positive review from uh, Commander Chris Hadfield who was the uh, commander of ISS for a while. He read the book and liked it and said it was very realistic. Yeah, no, it seems really super realistic to me. It, se- it seems like you would be an expert on if someone had to survive for a year on the planet, this is what they would do. Like, <laughs> you would be a good person to be in the room where they're making those decisions. Um, <laughs> what happened... The people, the people, the other people in that room would all be people who are a lot smarter than me. <laughs> so, well, what, 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 um, what happened when Ridley Scott called? Like, what was that like? Well, he he didn't call me. Uh, the um, the 20th Century Fox. It started off with uh, Fox wanted to uh, secure the movie rights, and this was, by the way, the same week that the book deal came through. So that was a really eventful week for me. Um, but. What they actually wanted was the option. This is how movie rights uh, work: is they don't they don't buy the rights outright, or they don't usually buy the rights outright. They come and say like, we want to secure the option. So we work out the whole movie rights contract and say like, okay, we will pay this big pile of money in exchange for the movie rights, and here's a thirty page contract detailing exactly what all that means. However, we're not going to give you that big pile of money. We're going to give you a small pile of money um, in advance, like right now. And then we are the only people who are allowed to buy the movie rights. That's what you're agreeing to. And then they can activate the contract uh, at any time to, and by just handing me the, the larger pile of money, right? And then and then they, they own the rights. If they don't, but that, so what it's called is acquiring a movie option. So that means they have the option to buy the rights. And options will expire after like 18 months. There's a lot of writers who actually like, make a lot of money off of movie options. Like they have like 10 books out there and like four of them are optioned by movie theaters. They never make the movie. Then the option expires and the rights go back to that writer. And then he options them out again. It, uh, there's a whole kind of industry on that. But anyway, so when they opted, the, the reason I'm giving you all that gory detail is that when they optioned the rights, it wasn't that big a deal. It wasn't like, Oh, we're making a blockbuster movie out of this. It was like, we want to make sure we're the only people who can make a movie out of it. And FYI, you know, we get about we for like we option like a hundred movies for every movie we actually make. So don't get too excited, <laughs> right? But and, then, um, and then, then when when did they that, decide to to actually buy their own option or or make the movie? Yeah, uh, well, they didn't actually exercise. Uh, they exercised the option at the last possible second. So. Um, they had greenlighted the movie long before they actually exercised the option. Um, the, 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 they actually activated it on the day they started filming, which was like uh, in November, which is when they started filming it. Um, and 
the reason they do it then is because they're like, okay, this is the point at which we're actually generating intellectual content. So this is the point at which we are in danger of infringing on the movie rights, which still at that moment belong to me until they activate the option. Right. So that's why they do it then. Um, and what's weird is like in the movie making business, what I've learned from, I mean, as, as an outsider's perspective is there is no moment where you pop the champagne cork and say like, all right, this movie is green lighted. It's happening. Okay. It's wait, I have slow- to, I have to disagree a little because you must have, when, when Ridley Scott and Matt Damon were involved, you must've thought to yourself, this is happening. Uh, I thought to myself, this is very likely to happen, but it's not a done deal until they, until they start filming. <laughs> and it's just, I don't know how to put it. It just becomes like more and more likely slowly over time. It's like, it starts off with like, it's like, okay, we've optioned the movie rights, whatever. And then Drew Goddard shows up and he's like, I'm going to write a screenplay for it. And he also had it in mind to direct, but then he he had to leave because he's going to direct um, the next Spider-Man movie. Um, so he's working on that, but he, he got screenplay. And then, and then Matt Damon signs on, and suddenly it's a lot more serious. It's like, whoa, Matt Damon is interested. Well, that makes it a lot more likely that they're that they're willing to make the film. And then Ridley Scott signs on, and so you got Ridley Scott and Matt Damon both involved, and it's like, wow, now it's all just a matter of numbers for the studio. Well, do they think that they would turn a profit because it would be kind of an expensive movie to make? What will they decide? I don't know. They start having meetings. They start doing concept sketches of what the scene could look like. They, you know, and it it just slowly worked its way toward production. It's, it's weird. There, yeah, <laughs> there was the the point that I felt confident that they were actually going to make the movie was the day they started filming. Because I'm like, now it gets to the point where it's cheaper for them to make the movie and release it to offset costs than it is to cancel it now. <laughs> and so, does does Matt Damon like call you up and say, would Mark Watney have done this or this in, in this situation? <laughs> that, that'd be funny. That'd be great for a TV show. But no, it's uh, no. I've never I've never talked to any of the well, Drew Goddard. I talked to a lot, but I've never talked to Ridley Scott or Matt Damon or or any of the other actors on the film. I've never met them or anything. Wow, you would think that they would want to talk to you. I, I just, I, I'm not criticizing them. Like maybe this is just how it's done, but I would think just for motivation, they would want to talk to the guy who created the motivations. I don't know. I would say that you know, I guess the main thing is like how how Ridley wants to portray the story, right? So they're the one. He, he's the one they should really be talking to, right? right? The original intent is less important than the director's vision, right? And then, and then, how does it work? Like if the if the movie. Um, does 500 million at the box office do you do better than if it does 50 million at the box office technically yes but not the way hollywood does accounting so i got i got a, a set amount of money um which they just cut me a check for the day they activated the the option and then um i have what's called points on the back end which means i get a small percentage of profits so once the movie has like started turning a profit then I get a points on the back end. But the way Hollywood movies do their accounting, studios do their accounting, movies never turn a profit. Even movies that were obviously profitable. Like, for instance, I think Avatar has still technically never turned a profit. Neither has The Phantom Menace, stuff like that. Funny. So th- this is a way that they that they arrange things for tax purposes and for um, and so that they don't have to pay out those points on the back end. I seem but to remember there the thing was... Is, I'm, not, I'm not like upset by that because I knew that going in. So I expected those to be zero. I, I seem to remember, like decades ago, there was a famous case with Art Buckwald, uh, 
uh, suing a, a, a studio. I don't know what happened because of this accounting issue. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I, I do know that a lot of a lot of people get mad about that, but I don't think there's like this is this is the way they do things, and you know that when you're signing your contract. So <laughs> either 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 you know that when you're signing your contract, or your agent didn't do his job by telling you that, right? So no, I'm not. I'm not going to be upset when those turn out to be zero. Let me put it that way. <laughs> now, The Martian did so well. Does that make you stressed that uh, uh, the next one, uh, I guess, Zek, uh, Zek, yeah. Zek uh, does that make you stressed when you're writing Zek? Oh, God, yes. It is the principal, uh, it's the principal source of anxiety in my life right now is that, like, you know, my next book won't be as good. In fact, I mean, it's almost a given that my next book won't be as popular as The Martian. The Martian was insanely popular. <laughs> so isn't that funny? Like, you're obviously, obviously your dream, the dreams came true. Like, you had, it's like the fantasy. Like, first published right. novel, gets a movie, Ridley Scott, the whole thing. And then, and still, writing a book, this is the main stress in your life. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of being just a one-hit wonder. Absolutely. I'm afraid of it being like, oh, Andy Weir. Yeah, he wrote, he wrote that one good book. And right, then, but I'm, I'm like, oh, did you know he wrote nine other books? I didn't even know that. <laughs> you know? I'm sure that won't happen, though. But we'll, we'll see. <laughs> what What is your advice for writers? Like, let's say I know this is like a kind of standard question, but if you were to give like some a standard answer too, um, good. So, uh, so a few bits of advice. Uh, t- three pieces of, of advice. I answer this question a lot, so I've got it. <laughs> good. Well, number one is 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 actually right. It's it's easy to daydream and fantasize about what your story is going to be and how awesome it's going to be. It's hard to actually write it. So, like, summoning up the motivation to actually put the words on the page and make your story is is one of the biggest challenges to writing. So you have to do that. And so, I mean, it, it seems strange to say this, but, like, step one, write. Don't just imagine, oh, I've got this five-book series in my head. It's like, no, that's not writing. That's daydreaming. You have to write. Number two is um, uh, resist, and this is a weird one, resist the urge to tell your story to your friends or family or other interested parties. That's like, really important, I think. Yeah, you get, you get like, you see a lot of that. Imaginative people, uh, the, the people who want to become writers are usually share two traits. One, they've got a good imagination. Two, they want an audience. They want to tell people a story and have those people experience the story and enjoy it. I mean, that's just like the basic premise of what being a writer is. And so if, if you have the story in your mind and you want to tell your friends, ooh, I'm going to write a book someday, Here's, here are the events that are going to happen. And then you tell it to them. And your friends might even be genuinely interested. They might not just be faking interest to be polite to you. They might be genuinely interested. You have to not do that. You have to, you have to make a rule that says, like, I am not allowed to tell my stories to my friends. The only way my friends are allowed to find out my stories is by reading them. And so first I have to write them. The reason is because when you tell the story to your friends and family, it, saps your, it, it satisfies your need for an audience and reduces your desire to actually write it. That's so, fascinating. So resist that urge. And then the final thing to say to aspiring writers is this is the best time in history to be an aspiring writer. You, um, uh, With the internet and self-publishing, you no longer have to convince somebody in an office that you have a good idea. You can actually just write it and put it out there and see if people like it with, no, with nobody between you and the readers. And if it's good, it'll sell. 
What do you tell people who say, but I don't have enough time? Well, I mean, I, 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 I don't know what to say. It's like writing takes time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, 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 you have to you have to decide what your priorities are in life. If you're like a you know a single mom and you have like a full time job and kids to take care of in the evening, I'm sorry, you just don't have enough time to write. <laughs> yeah, although I think people can usually you know like you said you 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 avoid TV, you avoid kind of surfing the web during certain hours. You know, some people work on their lunch breaks. Like oh, there's well, always ways to I find time. time. Um, most, you know, I, I do it full time, which gives me the time I need to, to work on it. But when we were talking about aspiring writers, and so I'm assuming that they have like a full time job that is not writing. But but you you were an aspiring writer when you first started The Martian. Yeah, I've got no life. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that's not true. But uh, but anyway, um um, I really enjoyed the book. It's definitely like the dream come true for many people. So congratulations. This is, Thank you. and, and I highly recommend, I highly recommend the book, the Martian, which you can buy all over Amazon. Plus you can listen to the audio book. Um, or you can wait for the movie November, 2015, right? Yeah. November 25th, 2015. In fact. Wow. So they've, they've got it really, this is like the Thanksgiving uh, movie of next year. It is. It is. It, it, that, that is the, the release date is the day before Thanksgiving. It's Wednesday of that. Thanksgiving week. Oh my God, I'm definitely going to see yeah. it with my kids. I'm just grateful. It's three weeks before Star Wars. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm glad we're not opening against Star Wars. <laughs> wow, probably there'll be great Star Wars previews too, right? In the movie. I'm definitely yeah, going. Yeah, probably. If just three weeks before, I bet. Yeah. Okay, so final question then Star Wars or Star Trek? Uh, Doctor Who. Doctor Who, okay. <laughs> you like the time traveling thing? Oh, I've just been a fan of Doctor Who my whole life. All right, that, that's good. Well, uh, so Andy Weir, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, I highly recommend The Martian. Great book, and uh, thanks again. All right, well, thanks for having me. Thanks, Andy. Bye. All right, bye-bye. For more from James, check out The James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.